The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, again, it is it is a welcome sight to see so many folks out for Sunday night services, and I am really, really looking forward to our new study on Sunday evenings on the sacrifices of the Old Testament. So I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And you'll need your Bible this evening. I'd like for you to keep it open and be ready to turn quickly to each of the passages that we'll use in this message. There are several of them. And this evening we are beginning a study of Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, Several months ago in our Sunday morning forum class, Randy uh, asked a question about the many sacrifices that are in the Old Testament. And he said, why are there these different sacrifices? What do they mean? What's the purpose of having so many different ones? Sometimes I get hard questions in the, in the forum class. Usually we get through those questions without too many problems. But I knew as, as soon as Randy asked this question that we had a problem. This is a subject that requires quite a bit of thought, and there really isn't a quick, easy answer to it. Uh, there are many Bible topics that are uh, multifaceted, and I don't always have all the information or detailed information in my mind uh, with each one of those that I can just really pull up easily. So if there's a question that I don't think that I could answer in the class adequately, I'd like to table it and maybe come back to it later after I've had some time to think through it. Well, in this particular question, uh, after I started to look at it, uh, it got tabled for four or five, six months now as I was thinking about it, and I decided, as I looked back into it, to preach a series of messages on these offerings because they are so powerful in their meaning. In 2005, I preached a series of messages on the tabernacle, and there were 28 sermons in that series, and part of that study was about Israel's worship and going through these different offerings that are in the book of Leviticus. And I don't think that in the past 12 years uh, since that time that I have given any kind of detailed uh, look at those offerings again. And so I needed to go back to look at the nuances of of each of these offerings. Now, my original intent was that we would just come back to the form class. I would do an overview of it, and then we would move on. But as I began to look into it again, I found the material was just too rich to do that, too, too much to pass up. And this is good for us because like all aspects of the tabernacle worship there, there's just this marvelous view of the person and the work of Christ. And these offerings reflect the different aspects of Christ's work. Well, the reason that I waited so long to get back to this is because we had two series going on, Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, and we needed to finish one of those before we could get into this. So we have, and so we are. And the moral of this story is that if you have a hard question to ask in the form class, it might take six months to get an answer, and you might have to sit through a sermon series to get all of the answer. And then further, I'd like to say that I very much appreciate this question. I appreciate the opportunity to look at this subject again because it has been enriching in my personal study. The tabernacle is one of my favorite subjects, and it has been for nearly my entire life. 
I go back to the time when I was young and my, and my dad used to preach a series on the tabernacle every few years. And that's what fostered my uh, sincere love of this particular topic. And if you want to know why it's so important, those of you that were here those 12 years ago when we went through the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle touches on every major doctrine of the scriptures. And we were able to look uh, into these many, many different doctrines in those 28 sermons. And so we learned a great deal, of course, about the Christian faith. While others will spend time on simple messages that they should have long since moved on from, just as the book of Hebrews said, stop laying foundations all of the time and let's just go ahead and build the temple of the faith. Uh, that's what we desire to do here. It would be good for us to consider these offerings along with a study of the tabernacle again. And I don't know, maybe in the future we'll do that, uh, but not now. I don't intend to do that now. Maybe this will spur us ahead in a study of Hebrews, which I have intended to do for quite some time. I never seem to quite get there because the, uh, the Holy Spirit keeps leading me in a different direction. So maybe this will be the thing that kind of uh, pushes us over the edge there and gets us into the study of Hebrews. Now you'll notice that our scripture reading tonight is not in the Old Testament. Uh, I want to read from the Old Test uh, New Testament rather in Hebrews. Uh, the, this might be a forward statement for me to make, but the New Testament implications of what we're going to study is greater for us than it was for the people in the Old Testament time that actually made the sacrifices. The Old Covenant is connected to the New Covenant and it conveys very important spiritual truths that those that were in the Old Testament might not fully have understood. The spiritual truths that we learn here affect the way that every Christian lives his life. And so it's a shame to miss the study of these great truths. And so this question that Randy asked is valuable for all of us. So let's read these verses and we'll use these as an introduction to the study of sacrifices and if it turns out that you don't like the series blame randy if you do like them then thank randy that we're that we're studying this so hebrews chapter 9 take your bibles let's look there at verse number one then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary for there was a tabernacle made the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances 
imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And now if you'll look in chapter 10 and verse number 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. There are many people that want to dismiss the Old Testament as unimportant and not worthy of our time to study. When I first became the pastor, I determined that we would have at least one series in the Old Testament going on at the same time that we were studying in the New Testament. And I did that for several years, but then after a few years, the plan kind of got pushed to the wayside. It dwindled, and we really haven't spent all that much time in the Old Testament since then. But when I implemented that plan at the beginning, I remember there was someone who came to me who was very distraught and said, I don't understand why we're studying the Old Testament. Do we have to? And no, the answer, the answer is no, we don't have to, but we should. Or we're not going to reach full understanding of passages like this one that we find in Hebrews. Now, when the author wrote this, who was he writing to? He's writing to Hebrews. These are to Jews, Jews that had a strong background in the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, the Old Testament worship of sacri- in sacrifices. So if we don't study the Old Testament, we're not going to reach the richness and the, and the depth of the understanding to know God in the way that we should, in a more uh, intimate way, that he's presented in both of the Testaments. Now, you see, we have a problem with God, and that is, as much as we can know about God, we still don't understand him very well. We have a sense of God from the creation. Uh, The Bible tells us that we have no excuse not to know that God exists because he's evident from the creation. Paul said that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. And so you might ask, well, how do you see invisible things? Well, he meant that the invisible is evident by what you can see. God is a spirit, and you're not able to see him with your eyes, but it's very certain, very clearly evident that God exists because we see his power and his Godhead. These are seen by the things that he made. And so the evidence of God from the creation is given to us in what we call natural revelation. Natural revelation is good, but it's weak in this sense in that it doesn't tell us that we can have a personal relationship with the God who made us, and it doesn't tell us anything at all about his character. It tells us, creation tells us, that he is immense, that he is powerful. It even shows in his benevolence towards us that that he allows us to live, that he's created consistency within the universe. So we know that we're always going to have what we need, the materials that we need for shelter and clothing. God gave man the ability to start a fire, to make weapons, to hunt, and 
tools by which he could farm and build things. I mean, God gives ability that goes all the way up to making smartphones for people that aren't very smart and making calculators for people that ran out of fingers and toes. All of those things, even those are gifts from God. But as wonderful as creation is and magnificent as it is, the declarations of God that are in the creation, as the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. As great as that is, natural revelation is not enough. We need more to show us who God is and how we can reach Him. We need more to understand that God loves us enough that He was willing to give His own Son as a sacrifice for our sins. And so to understand that in a better way, there enters into the human and divine relationship a book. And that book is the Bible, God's holy inspired word. It gives the details, it unfolds the story, and it tells us more of what God is like and what he's done for us. But you know something? Man didn't always have that book. In the beginning, there was no book. And because there was no book, God did something else. Now, if you'll look for just a minute in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1, Hebrews 1 verse 1, it says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, I want you to hold on to that verse for just a few minutes because we'll come back to it. And that verse says, at other times... God spoke in different ways. So remember that for just a few minutes. Now the Bible is wonderful revelation, but the Bible is not natural revelation. The Bible is special revelation. It reveals how we can be saved from our sins. It reveals how we are separated from God. But then, as great as the Bible is, still God is too big to be explained. God is too complicated. We learn all that the human mind can comprehend, and thankfully that God gives us enough understanding that we can know how to be saved. Now, you remember when Solomon built the temple, he said, how am I going to build a house for the Lord? The heaven of heavens can't contain him, much less this house that I built. That's the immensity of God, that God is just too much for us. In Romans 11, Paul wrote, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now the truth is, we are never going to be able to understand and know all there is to know about God. And so if you're waiting for God to reveal something of himself that he hasn't already shown us in the Bible, then you're waiting for nothing. Because God's shown us all that he wants us to know. The rest of what we know will be found out, or will know, will be found out in eternity. And I very strongly suspect that all of eternity is not going to be enough for us to fully understand God. And so the only way that we can know about God is the study of His Word. Anything that we learn about God's character comes from this one source. Everything that we know about His Son, about His love, about God's concern for us, anything about this life and the life to come can be found out in only one way. It must come from the pages of the Bible. The Bible is the record of what God spoke to man. Now one of the most interesting things about the Bible... And God's revelation of himself is that God 
did not give all of this information in a completed manuscript at the beginning. He didn't say, now Adam, here's a book. This is required reading. You read this book and you'll understand me and make sure that you study it because there will be a quiz afterwards. No, it didn't come that way. And this is why I want to take you back to Hebrews chapter 1. That God revealed himself in many different ways before he gave us the Bible. Now look at the verse again. Verses 1 and 2. Good, or God rather, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. And so that first verse says that there are other ways that God spoke, that he delivered his message in different ways besides what he did with the Ten Commandments. And we're studying the Ten Commandments, and God wrote those commandments with his own finger. He chiseled those into stone. But then there are other ways that God revealed himself. That's just a small part of the story. And so God used figures and symbols and patterns that served as illustrations of the truth. In the Old Testament, there are 37 books dedicated to this big jigsaw puzzle and there are fascinating pieces of it. And when you put all of those pieces together, there's a picture that emerges from them. And you know what that picture is? It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that's formed by all of these pieces when they're put together. And when those pieces are put together, it, revo- it reveals a remarkable picture of, the, of the, every aspect of the person and work of Christ. Now, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verses number 23 and 24, Hebrews 9, 23 and 24, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, the holy places that are made with hands refers to the tabernacle. That there were patterns in the tabernacle that were figures of the true. Which means that they represent something bigger than the physical components. That they're types and they're images, they're symbols and shadows of good things to come as we, as we read in Hebrews 10 verse number 1. Now, in the study of the sacrifices, we're only getting a small portion of the many types and figures of the tabernacle. But what we get here... Are, are glorious, important types about the sacrifice of Christ and what he would do for the fallen world. Now let me talk to you for just a few minutes about the way that God communicated with Israel. Now there is some doubt about how much that Israel understood about the Messiah. This is a, a question that I can't fully answer. How much did Israel understand about the symbolic meaning of the sacrifices and other parts of the tabernacle, and, and we will discuss that further in another message. But I do know what we read here in Hebrews, that looking back, Hebrews tells us that the events of the Old Testament connect the New Testament Christians. And I think we have to conclude that the author explained these things because the Hebrews that he wrote to did not understand what it was all about. Now, these were... Hebrews that practices, practiced those sacrifices, but they didn't know what those meant in the larger context. 
Now, there's a very important truth that that demonstrates for us. That we cannot write off the Old Testament because Hebrews says it tells us something about God. In fact, it tells us a great deal about Jesus Christ that you can't know unless the Bible tells you how these symbols relate to Christ. So here's the principal thing. And that is, we want to know as much as we can about God through the only resource that he's given. And so for us to do that, it means that we have to mine the depths of the Word of God to get at the truth. We can't sit up on the surface with the salvation message 52 times a year on Sunday mornings and expect that we're going to have any depth of understanding about God. So let me connect some of the dots that show you the way that God communicated truth. There wasn't a completed Bible, and so God used images. He told stories. He used illustrations. The Old Testament is filled with visuals. Now, our Sunday school teachers use certain materials for illustrations, visuals. They might have a whiteboard in the class, maybe a flannel graph. I don't even know if we use flannel graphs anymore. That, that used to be one of the things that you use. Uh, maybe it's a coloring book, maybe it's pictures or handouts. But God did the same thing to Old Testament Israel. They gave them things, he gave them things to see. And the visuals that he gave were teaching tools that helped them to understand him. There's a chapter that I love to turn to, and I do it over and over again to illustrate this point. So let's turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The beginning of this chapter is, is rich in imagery as Paul made spiritual applications of physical events. And I want to use what we read here as an example of how we break down the Scriptures to get the picture of God in types and figures. So in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 1, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All our fathers were under the cloud. Now, I think you recognize the reference to the cloud. The physical cloud was a huge column of smoke that went before Israel during the day and led them on a path through the wilderness. And that cloud is a type of a greater spiritual truth that connects you, the Christian, to a modern-day symbol of how the Holy Spirit leads us every day in our walk with Christ. Verse number 2, And we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were all baptized unto Moses. Now, obviously, there wasn't any Christian baptism in the Old Testament, so Paul's not saying that Moses held a baptismal service on the shores of the Red Sea. No, the baptism here is emblematic. This means that they were identified with Moses as their leader, or they were one with the experience that Moses went through. Well, what does that mean to you as a Christian? Well, obviously, since it says baptism, then what would enter into our mind is Christian baptism, which identifies us with Christ, which means that we are one in his experience and his suffering and his death, and we're also one with him in the resurrection. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So in other words, he's saying you are identified with Christ. In verse number 3, 1 Corinthians 10, And all did eat that spiritual meat. They ate meat. What does that mean? Well, the meat in the context of the King James simply means food. And what was the food that they ate? The food they ate was manna, 
manna that was supernaturally supplied by God. So what's the spiritual representation in that picture? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, the Jews said to him, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus answered unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Now, do you see what's going on here? These are pictures. The manna is a visualization of truth that would be revealed in the New Testament. And then the fourth verse. And did all drink that spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now right there, this verse is a clincher. They drank of the spiritual drink. The physical drink, of course, is water that came from the rock, the rock that Moses struck, and that rock followed them. And what does Paul say about that rock? He says that rock was Christ. Verse number 6, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul said they are examples. The word there, the Greek word is tupos. It's the same word as type. It means a casting. It means an image, a figure of a real thing. And so it teaches us something about Christianity today. Don't lust. Don't make idols to serve in your life. Then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, don't, for, don't commit fornication as they did. Don't test Christ as they tested God. And then Paul tells us why this story is in the Old Testament. Verses 11 and 12. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him think if he stand and take heed lest he fall. Pictures, types, visualizations given in the Old Testament that would be revealed in the New, things that we need to know about Jesus Christ. Of course, I could take you to Genesis chapter 22. We could step back through that. You, you may re I hope you remember the Father's Day sermon from last year. It was a study of types. Abraham is the type of the Father. Isaac, the type of Christ. The altar, that's a type of the cross. The ram, the type of a substitutionary offering. Moriah, where they went for this sacrifice, is a type of the mountain, the place of Calvary and of the temple. And then there was a fire, which is a type of judgment. Why is that story given? Does it end in Abraham and Isaac? It's just their experience? No. It has a greater spiritual purpose. It's emblematic of the offering that God would make when he gave Jesus Christ, his son, as a sacrifice for our sins. Then we think of other places, like John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Why? Because he liked to lift up snakes on poles? No, because that was a type of a sin offering, that Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And then there's another interesting one given by Paul in Romans 10. If you go there for just a minute, in Romans 10, uh, I like this one particularly because of uh, the study of the Ten Commandments. Why were the commandments given? Why, why was the tabernacle a part of the law that's given to Moses? Why are sacrifices a part of that law that's given to God's people? Well, Paul explains that in Romans chapter 10. In verse number 1, he says, Brethren, 
My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What does that mean, that Christ is the end of the law? Well, it doesn't mean that Christ did away with the law. We can't take that interpretation because we very well know obedience to the law can, continues to be the way that we prove our love for God. First John makes that very clear to us. We don't want to miss that truth. As well as when Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. So we can't say, well, that's the end of the law. It's no more. Jesus did away with the law. He's the end of the law in that respect. No, the end of the law means that the law finds its purpose finally in Jesus Christ. That the goal of the law is to show us that we can't be saved by it, but we must turn to Christ as the one that the law points to, the only one that can satisfy God and reconcile us to Him. Galatians explains it. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to him that believe, them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so do you see how the law is targeted at Jesus Christ? God gave the Ten Commandments to reveal Christ. There's something very important behind the law. There's a reality there that tells us more about God. So this type of thing goes on repeatedly throughout the Scripture. There are multitudes of symbols that we find that, that speak of greater truths. You pick out just about any story that in the Old Testament and you'll learn something more about God. A few weeks ago, I was reading Daniel and the story of the three Hebrew children that were thrown into the fire. And that's a great story. All of you grew up with that. And if you ever had the opportunity to pick up a reader's edition of the Scriptures and read that, you'll find the story even more interesting because the narrative just pops out of you. And the purpose of that story is not to be entertainment for Sunday school children, but it climaxes in the story of Christ and His deliverance. Three Hebrews came out of the fire without a hair singe, without the smell of smoke on them. And Nebuchadnezzar stared into the fire and he said, But I see four men in the fire, and one of them looks like the Son of God. And I thoroughly believe that that was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. And so the message of the story is that Christ delivers us from the pangs of defeat and the fires of hell through the sacrifice that he made. Now, you might think that you don't know anything at all about Bible tip typology, but every time that you sat in the Sunday school class and you heard the stories, just like these pioneer children just went through and got their awards for, you were learning about Christ, types of Christ. You see it in the Old Testament. After I preached on Abraham, there was a, one person who came to me and said, I don't understand types, and yet you're getting types all along. Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale. And Jesus said, just like that, I'll be three days in the tomb. 
Now let me ask you something about your experience of the Old Testament. Have you ever read anything in the Old Testament like this? And the Lord Jesus Christ shall come, and he shall be an offering for your sins. You never read that in the Old Testament, did you? Did you ever read anything like this? Jesus Christ shall die and go into the tomb, and in three days he will be raised from the dead. Never read anything like that either, did you? Then tell me how that Jesus could do this. After he arose, he met two men that were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And this is the conclusion of their, con of their conversation in Luke 24. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How did he expound Moses and the prophets and show himself in the scriptures? How? He explained the types and the figures. Paul did the same thing to the Thessalonians. Acts 17, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. How did he do that? How did he teach that Jesus is the Messiah? He didn't turn to a verse that says, In case you're wondering, there will be this man named Jesus, and he will die on a cross in Jerusalem. He's the one that you look to as the Messiah. There isn't a verse in the Old Testament that says that. It was in the types and the figures. And that's what Paul showed them. He showed how Jesus matched the symbols, the physical things that found their purpose in a greater spiritual reality. Now, we're just about out of time, but let's just go over this one more time. To understand the tabernacle and the offerings, we must understand the people of that era. As Hebrews 1 says, from the beginning, God taught his people by exhibits, by signs and symbols. He pictured the redemptive work of Christ even as far back as the Garden of Eden when he killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as a symbol of eternal punishment in hell. He taught his love by saving Isaac on the altar and putting a ram nearby so that Abraham would be able to sacrifice it in his place. You see, the people of Moses' time were very sensitive to lessons that were acted out. They learned by illustrations. They didn't have a Bible to read in order to explain God. And when the Bible was given, it recorded what they saw and what they did, and that teaches us about God. Now, their parents told them stories that happened before they were born. They heard about Abraham and Isaac, and the pictures began to fill out their understanding of the God that they served. Moses went up on the mountain, came down from the mountain, and he had ten commandments, and he had a plan of worship. He had the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And everything that went into that building and everything that went into the worship would teach them lessons about God. But what did I say earlier? Their learning was incomplete. How much they knew about Christ is debatable. That's what Hebrews is for. It's written to Jews... And the author connected the Old Covenant to the New by explaining how all of those things are pictures of Christ. The oral traditions they had were not enough. 
telling stories over and over again were not enough. They needed the Holy Spirit to inspire the author of Hebrews to write this, to help them to put those jagged edges of this puzzle together. And now who is it that receives the benefit of all those types and figures? It's not them. They're dead. They're long since gone. They never saw the fulfillment of these things. And so who did? The ones who did are New Testament Christians, apostles, the first church. And it comes down to you and me. We know God better through the study of the Old Testament. Now, here's what you need to be thankful for, that the symbols point to the reality. Now, go back to the text again. It says just what I told you. In verse number 9, it says the gifts and the sacrifices could not make them perfect. Verse number 10 says the symbols were meats and offerings and washings and fleshly ordinances, but they did not accomplish in the end what needed to be accomplished. They weren't the real things. So what is the truth? Well, we read verses 11 and 12. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So here is the marvelous reality. Verse number 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So here is the ultimate point of our discussion this evening. How are you going to get understanding of the death of Christ on the cross? How are you going to get the full picture unless you go back to the Old Testament sacrifices? Now you see, these sacrifices are like a multifaceted diamond. A diamonds, diamonds with a thousand faces that reflect the glory of of Jesus Christ. And Jesus begins to dazzle and shine through all of these symbols. And so Christians who never study the Old Testament and never understand or get to the understanding of what we're talking about here never get all the pieces of this magnificent puzzle of who Christ is. The face of Jesus Christ in their puzzle is not clear without this. Now let me finish with a final observation. The ultimate purpose of this study is you. Oh yes, it is about Christ, but, but Christ is not going to change by the study. What changes is your perception of Christ, that you will know more about him because it will make you more about him. For every piece of this puzzle that you lack, there's a corresponding lack of the completion of this picture of Christ, a corresponding lack of knowledge about him. So why do we keep on preaching these kinds of things? Do you understand why we're not interested in, in motivational speeches and platitudes and sermonettes and feel-good stories that many preachers tell? We're not interested because they won't make you more like Christ. Now, I, I'm very pleased when church members appreciate what they're taught at Berean. I preach things like the doctrines of grace because they fill out the puzzle. They make things fit together so that we get a better picture of God. And there are many who say for the first time that these things speak to them. For many years they've sat under, under preaching that never enriched the understanding of God. And this is our goal here, to enrich your understanding and appreciation of God. Now I said that's the last point, but it's not. The Bible says all men are liars and preachers are the biggest ones. And Graham, you've got to learn that too. 
My last point is actually Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what does that sacrifice look like? Well, does the sacrifice of Christ ring any bells? And we're going to discover that when the New Testament speaks of sacrifice, that it uses Old Testament language to flavor that and give it color. From where? From five sacrifices that are made in the book of Leviticus. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, in the five sacrifices given to Israel for tabernacle worship. So come back. Next time, we'll start with that first sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 1. And you can come back fully expecting to learn more and more about Jesus Christ. We're going to start putting that puzzle together so you see Jesus unfold in the Old Testament sacrifices, the true picture of who he is and what he's done for you and for me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us the Word of God. Lord, it is our responsibility to take all 66 books that are here, to learn as much as we can about each and every one of them, especially as we see the types and figures, the symbols, the images, the visuals that are given in the Old Testament that had this express purpose to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must have the Old Testament to understand why they did these things and what each piece that may seem insignificant by itself and has no meaning to us at all, why it's there. Why, why God had them do these things. And although they may not understand them, we do because we now have the revelation of the new covenant in Jesus Christ that tells us why they did all these many different things. Lord, our purpose is to see Jesus Christ, to get a picture of every part of his life, the sacrifice that he made, what his life was like, what he went through, what he endured for us. And then, Lord, we'll see a picture of him in glory as well. Father, bless us as we study this and uh, keep our interest alive in it so we truly will know more about you in the end than we do at the beginning. Thank you, Lord, for this, this time of studying these small things that we've talked about tonight. Help us to learn them better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.